0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlatnik, And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, May 12, 2017. I'm on the road this week in Greenville Technical College, and um We're doing the show from on the road, so we're going to play a flashback Friday. We're going back to the show we did on 10-28-16, episode 435 with Bill Fisk. Bill is the leader of the Indoor Environments Group at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and we're going to talk about the Indoor Air Quality Scientific Resource Bank and IAQ Goldmine.
0: IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's j o n d o n.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com.
1: Today's guest is William Bill Fisk. He's a senior scientist, a mechanical engineer, and the leader of the Indoor Environment Group at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories. He's got more than 30 years of experience in research on the interrelated issues of building energy performance, ventilation, indoor environmental quality, and occupant health and performance. His research focuses primarily on energy-efficient methods of maintaining and improving ventilation, and indoor environmental quality in commercial buildings and on quantifying the impacts of building ventilation and ieq on health and performance he's a fellow of ashray a member of the academy of indoor air sciences and he serves on the editorial board for the indoor air journal he's an author of approximately 100 refereed archival journal articles or book chapters and his bs and ms degrees are in mechanical engineering we've got some music for our guest Bill, do we have you on the line? Yes, you do. Great to have you. Thanks for joining us.
2: Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Bill,
1: you know, we've talked in the past. The last time I I saw you in person, we were at the um, EPA's uh, PM2.5 and health uh, conference they had at uh, National Academy of Science in D.C., and um, at the time, I remember you were saying that you were kind of headed into semi-retirement, and um, we talked a little before the show, maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about um, what you're doing these days at, uh, with uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs.
2: Yeah, so I, I did officially retire about a year ago, but I'm still pretty engaged in the research here at, at the laboratory. I'm working part-time, still writing papers and, and helping out with research projects and advising other folks. Um, I do want to add one correction. In your intro bio, which was a little bit dated, you stated that I was the the group leader, but when I retired, uh, my colleague Brett Singer took over as group leader. So Brett Singer's now the indoor environment group leader here at the laboratory.
1: Okay, great. And Brett has been on the show. Um, he did a great job, and we hope to get him back again. Uh, he, you know, it must be fun to work with these young energetic and um, really intelligent researchers that uh, came into the indoor environment group over the years where where do you find these guys from I mean are, do they are they drawn to that area because um, you know the the local universities there and they work closely with the lab how do you get these guys
2: yeah it's we're really kind of lucky because I guess people love the the Bay Area, first of all, so they just love to live in the Bay Area. So that helps us attract really good people. Um, a lot of our young people have been come here as as uh, postdocs or graduate students, and and started here. And some of the strong ones continued with us over the years, and uh, some of the others just we leaders in other areas, and as we got openings, we were able to recruit them and, and bring them in. But, but you're right. It's been a real privilege to work with such talented, creative people here. It's, that's really what's made the, the work a pleasure. Keeps you young, too, huh? <laughs> some, some of them, yes. Some, somewhat.
1: Now, how long has the Indoor Environment Group been the Indoor Environment Group?
2: Well, we've changed the names over over the years, but we started an indoor environment research program in the late 1970s. It was founded by uh, a chemist named Craig Hollowell, who was uh, just a real pioneer in the field, but unfortunately died early. Um, By 1980, um, we had a pretty substantial Research program here with elements on building ventilation and VOCs and radon and combustion pollutants and exposures, exposure science, and so forth. So Craig was really a um, visionary, I think, broadly in the field and and really set us off on the the right footing.
1: And you know the first the first government document that I'm. I recall is, that wasn't until 91 the um indoor air quality managing indoor air quality in buildings was uh was your group publishing things and putting them up on the on the website like they do today back in the 80s? Well, we didn't
2: we didn't have a we didn't have a web in That's the early It's true. Okay. In <laughs> early in the early 80s or late late 70s. But yes, we were publishing documents and journals and publishing reports um from that period in the late 70s
1: interesting interesting bill all right well let's let's talk a little bit more about um the the resource bank i mean is it how does the resource bank get its funding and how does it choose the topics that they're interested you know that you're going to do work on
2: yeah so for the audience the resource bank is a website um in which, which is sponsored by the EPA's Indoor Environments Division, and its focus is um, information on how indoor environmental factors affect human health and human performance. Trying to be as quantitative as possible, and it has sort of various levels: short summaries and then no more detailed reviews of the literature. And then, in each area, it has Um, sections on practical implications. Um, It was originally the vision of um, David Madari when he was with EPA's Indoor Environments Division. He developed a broad initial vision and David and I developed the sort of felled that out into an initial plan but but shortly after that, uh, Greg Bruner with the Indoor Environments Division at EPA took over as the manager and it's been Greg and I working together who've decided where to focus, where to, in what areas to develop content. And I'd say that EPA not only supports the development of the, the website and the reviews that go into that, but also um, various projects to do critical analyses and meta-analyses, which are statistical analyses of published literature to, to pull together and to summarize what we know today.
1: And. It's divided into groupings, I guess, and and the first one I'd like to talk a little bit about, and I think it's really maybe one of the most important, is health and economic impacts of building ventilation, and, and it sounds like that was an early um, – early topic of interest and early topic of, and I can imagine why. I mean, we did, we had the first Arab oil embargo, which was back in, I guess, the late 70s, and we started tightening up a lot of buildings in the 80s and so on. Is that what led to the early interest in the health and economic impacts of building ventilation?
2: Well, I think the um, recognition that we had pollutants in buildings um, at levels that, that typically came from indoor sources that were at levels considerably higher than we had outdoors, coupled with the fact that we um, were making buildings more airtight, so we're having less outside air to sort of flush out those pollutants. That was an initial stimulus um, for indoor environment research. But the indoor environment field would be, you know, fully relevant, still important for health, for humans even if we had never changed ventilation rates in buildings, because the ventilation rates are just one of the set of key factors affecting our exposures and health effects indoors.
1: And what with respect to that section of the of the website, when when it comes to the health and economic impacts of, of ventilation, what what's the most important takeaways in your mind for we'll start with building owners and building managers. What what do you wish they knew more about or or understood better with respect to that topic?
2: Well, well, basically, I wish they understood more about the effects of ventilation on people. and, And sort of in summary, what we've learned is that in general, maybe not in every building, but in general, higher outdoor air ventilation rates are associated with, correlated with decreases in sick building syndrome symptoms, and improvements in human performance. Um, In schools, at least, there's considerable evidence that higher ventilation rates reduce absence rates of students. Um, We can also show via models that there's a number of chronic health risks, for example, of cancer that decrease with higher ventilation rates. Um, In all these improvements with higher ventilation rates lead to some economic benefits. Now, there clearly are some energy costs of higher ventilation rates, and they vary with the climate, but in general, if you look at cost-benefit analyses, the benefits of those higher ventilation rates far outweigh the, the costs of higher ventilation rates. Um, the, the other thing I think really needs attention is is our classrooms, our public school elementary classrooms, because you know we have a broad set of data that indicates we have a very widespread problem of low ventilation rates in classrooms that is ventilation rates that on an average are perhaps only fifty percent of the minimum rates that are specified in standards today, so we really need to focus on those classrooms
1: and you know I, I- I'm not sure I understand why that information doesn't seem to be getting through. I mean, with the emphasis on testing today and and the fact that I th- I think many schools are still paid or they get, you know, government subsidy be- based on attendance, um why do you think that message hasn't gotten through a little more, you know, a little more powerfully to the, to the school districts out there?
2: Um I think school districts Some of them understand the message, but the schools are really, they have extremely tight budgets. They have, they don't have, you know, highly qualified people managing buildings. Um, A lot of the classrooms have natural ventilation. Um, They're relying on openable windows and they don't get opened. Um, A lot of them have noisy HVAC systems and they get turned off that people can hear better in the classroom. Um, And sometimes people are trying to to save energy and they they reduce mechanical ventilation rates. So I think there's a number of reasons why we have this problem in classrooms, Um, and we really need some systematic research to understand fully what those reasons are and to come up with the best solutions.
1: And I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned energy and energy uh, retrofits retrofits, and uh, energy improvement, energy use improvements are, you know, a hot topic again, uh, just like it was back in the, you know, the 80s and so on. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how these energy retrofits are affecting the indoor environmental quality in buildings and, and what maybe we can do to make sure this time around as we tighten up buildings. We um, don't cause problems with indoor environmental quality,
2: yeah, very really important topic. Um, energy re- retrofits can affect the indoor environment positively or negatively or both, and really it depends on the retrofits that you implement and the context in which you implement them, so what the net effects are uh, and I think you know our goal going forward is to to use what we have learned to implement packages of measures, retrofit measures that simultaneously save energy, which is critically important, and to improve the indoor environment, or, or at least not to worsen the indoor environment, but ideally to improve it. Um, and there's there's many retrofits that have no significant effects on the indoor environment. You know, retrofits that improve equipment efficiency. Um, There's retrofits like addition of insulation and energy efficient windows that'll normally improve our thermal comfort conditions indoors. Those are important benefits. Um, And then there's retrofits that decrease ventilation, such as envelope sealing that increase the concentrations of pollutants that come from indoors, but they also decrease the concentrations of pollutants that come from the outdoor air. Um, but the available evidence indicates that those reductions in ventilation rate will usually be more negative for health and performance than positive. Um, so some retrofits can introduce pollutant sources, you know, insulation materials, sealing materials. Um, so, we need to pay attention to that. Um, envelope retrofits, heading and how they're done, they can make buildings more prone to dampness problems or less prone to dampness problems, and we, we've learned a lot about how to make them less prone through our retrofits. So if we apply the knowledge that we have today. Um, I think we can clearly move forward, make our buildings more energy efficient, and, and maintain and improve the indoor environment. But it takes attention to what we know.
1: Cliff, let me make sure you get a chance to jump
3: in here. Okay, um, in your opinion, how has um, health-related effects related to dampness and mold changed over the years?
2: Well, I'm not sure that the health effects have changed over the years, the health effects of dampness and mold, um, but our understanding of the effects of dampness and mold and health have, has just grown enormously. Uh, through research, and this is through really a a big body of research from around the world, not a few limited studies, but many high-quality studies. and uh, So, we now have this extensive body of high-quality research documenting that dampness and mold is linked to adverse respiratory health effects, including asthma and a significant body of research indicating that dampness and mold is linked to increases in respiratory infections as well. Um, But we still have a lot to learn. We don't know for sure what the causative agents are. We know that that when we have dampness and mold, we have more of these health effects, but we don't know for sure is it molds or bacteria or what specific molds or what bacteria. and that makes it harder to to deal with the problem. But underlying the problem is the problem of dampness in buildings, so we need to do a better job of preventing those dampness problems and remediating problems when they occur, remediating them quickly when they occur. Thanks. Earlier
1: you you mentioned when we were talking about ventilation and then energy retrofits that that done right, they can help um, with both, energy and with dampness and, and of course, with uh, better ventilation. Give me some idea of the low-hanging fruit, you know, that that building owners and managers, the things they can implement that will help with those issues and that that aren't going to be, you know, an entire building retrofit.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, I I mentioned a couple. um, Insulation of building envelopes and better windows can improve Comfort conditions and um, probably prevent mo- overheating, but not, not necessarily in every case. But reduce overheating problems too, which can be health risks. So those are very attractive. Um, in I don't know how much of our audience is familiar with the concept of an economizer, but an economizer is a control system in mechanical ventilation systems that brings in. More than the minimum amount of outside air, when doing so reduces cooling energy requirements. And economizers in commercial buildings will typically double the average the annual average ventilation rate, or more than double at annual average ventilation rate, and they save energy at the same time. And so, economizers are a way to save energy increase ventilation rates and get some of the health benefits of, um, uh, better ventilation rates. Huh. Um, simple, simple things like you know, there's still gas stoves out there with pilot lights. Those pilot lights burn up natural gas and they continuously release pollutants indoors. You know, that's clearly the kind of thing that we should, should work on. Um, and, you know, there's there's other options of, of that nature as well. And, and
1: I'm curious, Bill, with, with respect to, you know, ventilation and then we're, we're kind of combining ventilation and dampness at this point. Ventilation can be a double-edged sword, especially in certain parts of the country, whether it's because of particulate matter or whether it's because of um, moisture that comes in and, you know, Miami, for instance, et cetera. Um, how much is your group looking at the um how how there's kind of a trade off between ventilation and and filtration um how much are you looking at that? I know it's been a topic of of discussion in the indoor air quality world um should we be doing a better job of 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 filtration and if we do can we cut back on ventilation
2: uh, absolutely we should be doing a better job of of filtration we use I mean, we specify in our standards for buildings very low-efficiency filters, and we use low-efficiency filters both in residential and commercial. And um, it's you know the the benefit-cost analyses indicate we'd be much better off using better filters in our buildings. And um, if we do that, you know, we don't have to worry so much about increasing particle concentrations when we increase ventilation rates. Um, I don't think there's a big trade-off because the effects that we see re- associated with higher ventilation rates are things like changes in acute symptoms and absence and performance and so forth and then the, the big, um, health consequences of increasing ventilation, increasing particles from outdoors um, are chronic health risks, including premature death and, and uh, hospital admissions so forth, um, that are relatively rare but quite serious, and those are health effects that are well documented to be associated with outdoor air particles. So, there's sort of a different set of outcomes, health outcomes, that these two parameters Effect. So, what, but what we need to do is filter better, and make sure we get adequate ventilation as well.
1: And I'm, I'm wondering if you have a—I uh, don't—I saw some research that came out in the last couple of years about CO two. And since we're talking ventilation and and other indoor air quality issues, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on CO two as um, as an indoor environment environmental contaminant as opposed to a a surrogate for not having enough ventilation. What are your thoughts on that research?
2: Yeah. Um, so to give the audience here a little background for, for decades, we thought that at the concentrations indoors, experienced indoors, CO2 was just a proxy for other pollutants that are associated with occupancy and a proxy for ventilation per person. Um, but there's now been four studies where these are very controlled lab studies where we basically put groups of subjects in a controlled facility and, during some periods, just injected pure CO2 to see what the effects are, and so um, primarily looked at changes in performance outcomes. and. Uh, They've been four studies. Three of them have shown that adding CO2 but keeping those concentrations in the range that we see in some buildings has some adverse effects on human performance, and one of them shows no effects, and and one of of the others just shows some relatively modest effects. So it it looks like CO2 in particular is having effects on sort of high-level cognitive performance, difficult cognitive tasks. And perhaps less of an effect on simple cognitive tasks. Um, uh, there's a lot of questions remaining. Um, do these effects persist? You know, these have been relatively short-term periods of exposure. They persist if you're exposed day after day. Um, do you accommodate to those problems? Do they get worse? So there's there's much more to learn still. But uh, it's a very interesting area at this point.
1: I'm wondering, you know, one of the things I've found, Bill, in in my practice, I I do some indoor air quality consulting and even in my own home is that um, during sleep, we get very elevated CO2 levels in in many people's homes and and even in my own. And I'm wondering, has there been any study on how that affects sleep and and restfulness and and how fresh you feel when you wake up? are, Are you aware of anything like that?
2: Yeah, there's a little tiny bit of research, um, but I'm not convinced of it. I mean, first of all, human cognitive performance is probably not that important while you're sleeping, Um, so the immediate effects of CO2 and low ventilation is is probably not important, but um, there, there is a bit of research out of Denmark suggesting that more ventilation at night um, could improve sleeping, for example, but I'm not convinced that they were able to isolate the effects of ventilation from noise of HVAC systems and noise of open windows. So I think we've got a lot to learn there. But certainly indoor environments in bedrooms while we're sleeping is one of the frontier areas for future research. Okay,
1: and what we've got to do at the moment is we're going to stop and uh, thank our sponsors. We're going to take our halftime. We'll be back with the second half of our interview with Bill Fiske in about 90 seconds, so hang in there with us.
0: IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers, feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ Marquee Sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at JohnDon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com.
1: Okay, we're back with the second half of our interview. We've got Bill Fisk on the line here, and it's been uh, very interesting so far, Bill. I, I, I want to kind of um, summarize for viewers at this point, or listeners, we talked a little bit about the um, section of the website that goes over health and economic impacts building ventilation, and then we talked a little bit about indoor dampness, biological contaminants, and health, and I'm, I'm trying to go down through the list of um, topics in the Indoor Environment Group website uh, from the Lawrence Berkeley Labs. The next one I have on my list is indoor volatile organic compounds and health, and, and it seems to me that's a, a topic that, at least in the, in the circles I run in, doesn't get as much focus as um, what I see in... You know, when I talk to people from overseas, um, how big, can you give us a couple of thoughts on on VOCs and their uh, impact on indoor environmental quality, and, and whether you think maybe that's been hasn't been um, focused on enough with with respect to at least uh, practice in the field in the United States?
2: Actually, uh, my view is a little different. I, I think the public hasn't been highly focused on VOCs, but I think the the architects, the interior designers, the the suppliers of products for buildings have been focused on VOCs for quite a while, and and they really made some progress in reducing the the sources in our buildings. So I think our building materials and our furnishings are smaller emitters of VOCs than they used to be. Um, we've made less progress with Consumer products and cleaning products, and of course, people themselves are sources of VOCs. So we still have important sources of VOCs, but we've really made quite a quite a bit of progress. And if you look at VOC levels in buildings today compared to a few decades ago, you can see the evidence of that progress. Um, you know, countries like China, I think, may have a broader recognition because. They haven't really dealt with the indoor sources as well as we have, um, so they tend to have higher levels. And because their outdoor air is, is often pretty polluted, um, increasing the ventilation is not a very attractive option for, so, for VOC control there. So they're in a bind. They really need to deal with the indoor sources, and of course they need to work with you know, air pollution control agencies to try to deal with the outdoor air problems as well.
1: When we're on this topic, um, formaldehyde, of course, is a big topic of concern for people. And it's been in the news recently with the lumber liquidators. Um, <laughs> the thing on, I guess it was on 60 Minutes. And people have been a little concerned about their installed laminate flooring. And it, and it goes back to the heart of what you're talking about. And I think that's a, a great point. We, we've we done a pretty good job in the U.S., but um, we still import a lot of products. And, and they may or may not be as well um, as well manufactured and 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 as uh, well regulated, I guess, um, or or monitored when they come over here. If someone had uh, installed in you know your family, let's say, some laminate flooring from uh, Lumber Liquidators, that you know was concerned about the formaldehyde, what would what would your response be?
2: Yeah, I've gotten this question a lot. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, if you're concerned. Simple things you can do are increase the ventilation, keep some windows cracked open, um, try to avoid periods of high temperature because emission rates of formaldehyde from materials increase strongly as the temperature goes up. High humidity also increases emission rates. Um, short of that, it's um, you know, removing products, um, but I wouldn't, wouldn't do that without making some measurements um, getting somebody to make some formaldehyde measurements, a consultant, to see whether they're really elevated in that particular space. Um, and I, at this time, I can't really recommend formaldehyde air cleaning techniques as practical. Um, I don't think we have enough long-term information on air cleaner performance to say that there's products that, that I could recommend today.
1: Okay, and uh, Cliff, do you have a follow-up on that?
3: Well, he actually answered my, my question, but Bill, any do you have any experience with uh, the the adsorption material that utilizes potassium permanganate for yes. adsorption
2: of formaldehyde? Yes, I mean it. It can well. It's today. It's mostly sodium permanganate. Um, it can be very effective in. Um, reacting with it's not it's not a physical absorption it's a chemical reaction with formaldehyde and removing formaldehyde and the the question is how long does it last and how much does it cost um, you know it's it's not specific to formaldehyde so it removes basically oxidizes a number of compounds and it's pretty expensive so I don't think it's a, Solution for broad use in in home situations today. Cliff, anything further?
3: No, that's it. You know, the reason I asked is that I know formaldehyde has been used in uh, you know different decontaminations with anthrax and other things in residences and public buildings and and so on and so forth, and that you know they use formaldehyde to, to to deal with it and um, I knew that they'd used the potassium, and, or I used the sodium permanganate. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's more uh, recent or whether they had used the potassium stuff, but I know it removed it for, you know, they got the levels down, uh, you know, after the projects and stuff, but other than that... Um,
2: yeah, that's... A, that's I'm not familiar with using formaldehyde to deal with, with contamination problems, but... Um, it's a different situation because you've got a temporary source of formaldehyde versus a continuously emitting source that persists, say, for years in a building. Right. So, you know, it calls for different types of solutions.
3: Thank you.
1: One of the other things I've seen is, is and, and it kind of came and then went back, Underground a little bit more, or it just wasn't as um, out in the or, you know out in the public uh, sphere as much. It was these photocatalytic oxidation and uh, titanium dioxide technologies, etc., and uh, putting them maybe into mechanical systems. I, I'm sure you've done work on that, and I'm wondering if you could comment for listeners: Is that type of technology ready for prime time?
2: I don't think so. Um, I think there's improvements. Uh, these are these are technologies that basically contain a photocatalyst like a, a tio2 photocatalyst which is irradiated with ultraviolet light and things like formaldehyde or certain organics adsorb on this catalyst the uv light reacts and produces reactive hydroxyl radicals which can help destroy the formaldehyde um the, the problems that we've seen are that it doesn't necessarily break com down, VOCs down fully. So, it may break them down partly. For example, a high molecular weight VOC might break down partially, and you have some formaldehyde as an end product or other organics as an end product. And sometimes those products of incomplete decomposition might be worse than the original ones for health. Um, And the other problem is that catalysts have been susceptible to to poisoning and and short life. So making progress, I think um, we need more work in this area. It may be practical in the future, but I haven't seen a product that I can recommend today.
1: Okay, that's helpful. And then I'm I'm curious with the um, section on the uh, website on impacts of indoor environments on human performance and productivity. We've We've talked a little bit about that within some of the other sections. There is some overlap. Before I move on to the next segment, I'm wondering if you have any other comments on that section of the website.
2: I just think it's it's really important. I mean, the the evidence is that the indoor environment can affect performance, uh, probably without any clear effects on health and when we have indoor environmental effects of uh, health, they also impose costs. And um, there's big economic consequences of of changes in human performance. Um, So that should factor into people's decision-making about how they design and maintain and operate our buildings.
1: You know, and I just want to let you know, I have used some of the documents from that section to try and get building owners to understand that, you know, some of these recommendations we make, like, you know, making sure you ventilate your building properly and, and, and others, um, it it has some impact anyway. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's, you know, changes their mind totally, but when they look at, they rarely see the fact that, you know, their costs are hard costs. It's well I'm paying more for energy and, and so on, and they don't always see that. So it's, it's nice to have that information available for those of us out in the field to, you know, to hand it over to building owners, at least it gives us something beyond our own, uh, you know, our word to them.
2: So I find yeah. it helpful. I also think, you know, in that realm, there's another sort of win-win, and that is with respect to temperature control. Temperatures pretty clearly affect human performance as well, with performance maximized sort of right around the, the comfort zone. Um, and we have quite a bit of overheating in our buildings in the winter time which is a area where one can avoid it overheating it makes some small but economically significant improvements in human performance and and save some energy at the same time you know and if we can
1: get people to uh, dress properly at certain times of the year too we're i'm sure that's covered somewhere on the website but you know, having people wear uh, the proper clothing in the winter versus the summertime and, you know, long sleeves versus short sleeves and, and so on, there, there's, there's some real easy things they can do that seem to be uh, common sense, but it doesn't always happen in buildings. Where, where is that covered on, on your site, Bill?
2: Actually, we don't talk about um, different clothing levels on the website, but it's, but it's true, um, you know, using appropriate clothing, and, you know, there have been policies, for example, in some organizations and countries to, for example, not require men to wear, you know, suit coats and heavy clothes, you know, during the the cooling season. And by doing so, you can raise the temperatures a little bit and um, maintain comfort. So clothing is important. And there's also, I think, some exciting developments in little personal control systems for so at your workspace where you can control your comfort uh, locally better and i think that's you know a path forward that can also allow us to have a little more flexibility in the temperature elsewhere in the building improve comfort improve performance so i'd look for those technologies in the future
1: okay and uh, let's move on to the next uh, topic and that's the um the benefits of improving indoor environmental quality. Um, what does the research indicate are the most important benefits of improving indoor environmental quality? I think we've talked about, you know, a bit about them, uh, a good bit about them so far today, but I guess is there anything in that section that you'd really like to make sure listeners are aware of?
2: Um, I mean, the key well documented benefits are just increased satisfaction with the indoor environment, reductions in acute sick building symptoms and allergies and asthma, um, decreases in absence and improvements in performance at work and performance in schools, I think those are all really important benefits. And the next
1: section that uh, I want to talk about is the air cleaning effects on health and perceived air quality. Um you were talking at the um PM2.5 conference and, and you spoke a good bit about filtration and I thought some of what you said was um very interesting and and I'm, I'm I maybe mixing up conferences and presentations but I think you were talking a little bit about some of the newer filtration and and the electrostatic um properties of some of these newer filtration products I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about that
2: Um Yeah, I I didn't really talk a lot about that at the meeting, but um, one of the topics you may be referring to is the performance of different types of of particle filters. We have filters that have embedded charges um, in them to help improve performance of removing small particles, and those embedded charges help, um, but sometimes those improvements in those in particle removal of that type of filter decays. And it depends on the, the kinds of particles that are deposited on the filter. So if you have, you know, say oily particles or something depositing on the filter versus just black carbon particles um, on the filter, you can see that the performance of the filter actually decreases after a while. Um, so another change is happening in filter technologies. There's, I mean, there's just more of a move to highly pleated filters with small fibers and maybe gradients in the types of fibers in the media that allows us to get a efficient filter that's not deep and may still only be one inch and it doesn't have a high pressure drop that has a lot of media. So I think you know, these improvements in filters make using better filters you know much easier to accommodate more practical today
1: and and when it comes to when it comes to filters for you know for for the typical um listener out there what's what's the most important thing with respect to ensuring that the filters are are doing what they're supposed to do is it um you know is the bypass the key is it going to a thicker filter with with more pleated type filters and uh maybe you could you give a little tip on that
2: yeah i mean there must I mean, bypass can be important, but really the most important thing is to pick a relatively efficient filter to start with and to change it when it needs to be changed. Um, and make sure that filter doesn't impose a particularly high pressure drop, which means it needs to have a lot of pleating or a large, large surface area. Um, and uh, it's pretty simple. The technologies are, are very well developed and can be very effective. And um, the evidence is that better filtration can reduce these adverse health effects that are very clearly documented to be associated with higher outdoor particle levels. And and while we're uh-huh. talking
1: about oh, – I'm sorry, did you have something there?
2: Yeah, I just want to uh-huh. say that the, the costs are, are really pretty modest compared to the benefits.
1: And uh, while we're on filtration, I, I was wondering if you could give listeners a – a few tips based on your research on portable air cleaners and and uh, how effective they are in the first place. And then, you know, if, if you're going to recommend a portable air cleaner, what what's important to keep in mind when making those recommendations?
2: Yeah. So, so portable air cleaners can be quite effective in reducing indoor particle concentrations. Um, most of the research is in, in homes. Um, uh, there's been a lot of high-quality studies. That does appear to be only small, you know, improvements in allergy and asthma health outcomes with portable air cleaners. Um, we don't fully know why, but those small improvements and they're primarily linked to places where we have strong allergen sources. Um, so again, if the benefits are those associated with the health effects of, of outdoor air particles. Um, Portable air cleaners can remove particles more energy efficiently than central systems because they use high-efficiency filters. So if you have a, a central system with a low-efficiency filter, you're pushing a lot of air through it and through all the ducts and not getting the benefit of removing majority of the particles in the air. But the, the portable air cleaners that typically use HEPA filters remove most of the particles, and some of them have very efficient fan motor systems as well. So they can be pretty energy efficient. Um, So what are the the tips? I mean, pay attention to the, the clean air delivery rate. You have to have enough particle removal to affect particle concentrations. Pay attention to life cycle costs, not just initial costs. Over time, the filter replacement costs and the energy costs are a really big factor. Um, and pay attention to noise because a lot of the devices are um, too noisy and people turn them off. So those are, the, I think, the key factors for practice.
1: And there's, uh, go ahead, Cliff. Uh, you got a follow-up?
3: Yeah, Bill. Um, I would say in the last five or six years there's been a big movement Um, I think, in the disaster restoration industry towards the use of uh, hydroxyl-generating equipment for odor removal, for Mm. particulate removal. You know, I I think these devices are often sold as the silver bullet for, you know, resolving all all the problems. And I think the listeners are confused about a couple of things. Uh, One of the things... um, do the hydroxyl radicals actually get outside of the equipment, and if so, you know how far can they move before they, they you know, they break down, uh, you know, in the environment, or does the entire reaction occur within the device? Yeah.
2: So, um, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of air cleaners that intentionally emit ozone, um, but you can also emit other chemically reactive molecules, perhaps including hydroxyl radicals, reactions could occur in the device or they could emit um, chemically active molecules into the indoor air. Um, I I think it's important to avoid air cleaners that emit reactive compounds into the indoor air um, because we don't break down... Um, chemicals completely so we get un- undesirable byproducts or we, we have a risk of that. Um, so I think that should be avoided. Um, it should be one of your first priorities in selecting an air cleaner. And uh, uh, the um, as far as sort of the performance of many of these devices, they haven't been well studied. So there's much that we have yet to learn. Thank you.
1: Okay, uh, another section, and, and the last I want to mention in, on, on the website is climate change, indoor environmental quality, and, and health. And um, obviously there's been a great interest in that area lately. Um, what are your thoughts on how much effect climate change is going to have or is having on indoor environmental quality?
2: Yeah. you know, Of course, we can only make Predictions about the future because most of the climate change is yet to to hit us. Um, but it, it looks like there's going to be some substantial effects unless we implement corrective measures. And uh, the areas that I'm concerned about are um, overheating indoors when we have periods of high indoor temperatures, um, particularly in buildings without air conditioning or where people can't afford to operate their air conditioning, and with effects as minor as increased thermal discomfort to, you know, increased premature death. Um, but a lot of people um, die during heat waves or can die during heat waves. So I'm quite concerned about that increasing with climate change. Um, when it gets warmer outdoors, um, we have more chemical reactions that produce ozone in the outdoor air, in urban areas, and um, that means we're going to bring more ozone into our building. So that's, that's a concern as well. If we do a good job of reducing the pollutants that lead to ozone production, that won't be as big of a problem. Um, with climate change, we project um, more severe storms and sea level rise, and we'd expect that to lead to more dampness problems and, and mold problems in our buildings. Um, we're already seeing big increases in wildfires, particularly in the Western United States. And uh, there's adverse health effects of wildfires, and they come substantially from indoor exposures during those wildfires. So particle exposure during wildfires uh, being more common with climate change is a concern. Uh, And then the last area is is building energy efficiency. We talked about that before, depending on... We need to make our buildings much more efficient to help reduce climate change, but how we do that uh, is going to determine whether we have positive or negative overall effects on the indoor environment. Okay,
1: now I've got some general questions that I'd like to, to finish up with here, Bill. And th- these are kind of you know, the ones that we, we ask a lot of the people that come on the show that have been in this industry for a long time, and we respect their opinions. I'm, I'm curious, what what type of emerging IEQ issues do you see that maybe we haven't talked about? I know some of these things we've already talked about, but maybe you could recap those. What are going to be the important issues in the future?
2: Yeah. um, There's a lot of areas. I mean, we talked about the direct effects of CO2 on human cognitive performance. Clearly, that's an emerging important issue. Um, I'd say that the health consequences of indoor exposures to semi-volatile organic compounds that that act like hormones in humans, some of the flame retardants and plasticizers, so learning about what are the effects, uh, reproductive effects or cancer effects or other effects of SVOCs? Certainly an emerging issue needs more attention. And I think a really interesting one is the interaction of what we call the human microbiome, the complicated mixture of bacteria in our body and the microbiome in buildings and the implications for human health because we're learning that, um, you know, People have, and their health is very much affected by all these microorganisms in our bodies, and uh, the indoor environments may affect those microorganisms and just profound, potentially profound effects for health. So that's a really exciting area for the future.
1: I'm wondering. I've I've seen people recently advertising probiotics for buildings, and. I'm wondering, you know, I have my thoughts on that, but I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? Are we is that ready for prime time?
2: Uh, I certainly haven't seen any evidence that so it's ready for prime time. Okay, I appreciate that. Um,
1: next one is, um, you know, you've dealt with indoor environmental quality and energy related research over the years, ventilation. What are the most important tips I think that um, you would give? to indoor environmental quality investigators, people out there trying to solve problems for people in buildings.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of these investigators are very, very talented and and uh, what I say won't be new to them, but um, certainly they need to, to employ a portfolio of investigative methods, including to talking to people uh, in the buildings. And, and I think um, they need to avoid excessive reliance on expensive, indoor air quality measurements. Um, for example, levels of airborne mold haven't been very predictive of health, so they don't really add a lot of value, but they can be expensive. Um, but I'd also say be, be wary of snapshots because the building operation and the indoor environmental conditions can vary a lot over time. And I think there's perhaps too much reliance on a very short snapshot of indoor environmental conditions without Paying attention to the potential variability over time.
1: I'm glad I asked because that—that's. Uh, I wasn't sure what kind of answer we would get, and those are very important. I think uh, I have to agree wholeheartedly, and I'm glad. I'm glad we asked. Let's let's do the same thing for remediation. I guess I want to start with this. I have a hard time sometimes finding good information on on the effectiveness of remediation techniques in indoor environments whether it's uh cleaning up after uh there's a water damage or cleaning up after fires or you know removing odors etc can can you talk a little bit about that and then any tips you may have for people that are doing remediation
2: Yeah I, you've you've identified a really important issue and that is we have a lot of remediation, but there hasn't been a lot of follow-up to see how effective it is, and the market doesn't necessarily support that. So, I think ideally the remediation needs to take advantage of every opportunity to evaluate whether their remediation efforts really work, so they learn from experience and we need to communicate what they've learned, and um, we just don't have enough data. We do have a little bit of research on Um, effectiveness of moisture and mold remediation in buildings, but it's a very small number of studies. It does look positive, but many of the other remediations, we don't have a body of, of literature to determine whether they're really effective or not.
1: And Cliff, before we sign off, I want to make sure you've got a chance to get any final questions in.
3: No, I already did. Thanks, Joe.
1: I'm wondering, too, uh, before we go, Bill, any final thoughts for those that are uh, building owners and managers out there? We've we've talked a little bit about that during the last hour, but any, any final thoughts on what's important for them with respect to maybe yeah, some tips? Yeah, sort of,
2: you know, following what we said, when they make their decisions about building design, operation, maintenance, pay attention to the possible effects on occupants' health and performance and their economic significance, because... Just not given enough thought today, and especially up front.
1: Uh, they, there's, uh, I'd love to see more building owners and managers, designers work with indoor air quality people up front, as opposed to bringing us in only when there's a problem at the end. Finally, before Definitely. we uh, before we go, we always like to ask the uh, the last question: is uh, Is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? Any final thoughts? And and I also want to just thank you so much for joining us. We've been Hoping we could get you on here, and I'm I'm glad we did.
2: Yeah. Um, I just wanted to thank you and your team for the opportunity to speak here and uh, thank EPA. They've been a longtime supporter of the work underlying uh, this website, and it's, it's really been a great working relationship. So I really appreciate the EPA support. Thank you.
1: Okay, and this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest. I'm so glad we, uh, we were able to finally get this one worked out. I had a mix-up on the dates the last time. I had too many things going on at once, Cliff. But, uh, Cliff, any final comments? Uh, thanks again to you, as always.
3: No, it was a great interview. I have a tired hand, but uh, it'll be a good blog.
1: Writing the blog. And, uh, Bill, we'll pass that blog along to you for any comments prior to putting it out uh, before next week. And, Cliff, are we set for next week now? Are we going to have the the show we discussed?
3: Yeah, I believe so.
1: Okay. So I think we're going to have um, Pete Consigli and and Ken Larson joining us?
3: Correct. We're going to talk about uh, the state. We're going to continue... Uh, our discussion uh, that we had with uh, Jim Pemberton and Lisa Wagner on the state of education in the industry, uh, get their opinion on it, and how to make it better.
1: Well, until then, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Bill Fisk, to my co-host, the Z-man, Cliff Zlotnick, to our engineer, John, you got to have faith, most importantly to our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday. We'll be live again at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.